Okay, welcome to the G3X Conversations from the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofits at California State University Fullerton College of Business and Economics. I'm your host, Zoot Velasco. This will also be broadcast on the 501c3BS podcast. We have with us today five people who have their ear to the ground in Orange County, experts of the social sector. First, Todd Hansen, Vice President of the Orange County Community Foundation. Uh, next, we have Rick Stein, the CEO of Arts OC. Amanda Green, the Organizational Development Services Director for 1OC. Claudia Keller, Chief Mission Officer for Second Harvest Food Bank of OC. And Victoria Torres, Director of Community Impact Anaheim for the Sam Welly Foundation and founding board member and current board chair of the Orange County Nonprofit Professionals Network. Welcome to 501c3BS, busting the myths of the social sector and deprogramming you for organizational growth. Brought to you by the Gianneschi Center for Nonprofit Research at California State University Fullerton College of Business and Economics, celebrating our 25th anniversary year in 2021. I'm Zoot Velasco, director of the Gianneschi and your host for this podcast journey. Each of my panelists are gonna share their vision of a post-COVID world for Orange County for their sectors. So let me get things started with what we know today, just in terms of a post-COVID world, what that will look like according to the experts nationwide. And as far as we know right now, there's currently seven variants of the virus in the US spreading with more resilience to the vaccine. So this is a concerning thing for the CDC because um, Originally, there was the UK variant, and then we had a Brazilian variant and a, a South African variant. And now there are seven different variants. Some are more drug resistant than others. Uh, but as far as we know from very limited resource research, it looks like even with the variants, they're at least 60%. Um, the vaccines are at least 60% effective on them which is much less than the 90 plus percent that most of the vaccines are on the original virus. So they're looking at doing some booster shots for those that may get rolled out at the future time. 10% of America has currently been vaccinated. When that reaches 70%, we will reach a herd immunity status where the virus will no longer be a threat, meaning that everything can reopen. Uh, and it it provided this is all provided that the new strains do not pull down the vaccine effectiveness too much. Uh, and as I said, so far, it looks like they're still effective. They're just less effective. Um, so what we're trying to do is get enough vaccines out into the public before the strains take hold. And if we can do that quickly enough, reach that 70% status, we should have enough herd immunity, even for the new strains to be able to open up the economy again. And this, the new strains will have very limited effect. So that is, there's a race against time going on right now. According to the US CDC, we're expect, uh, expecting a 14 day, a four, excuse me, a 14 week period of new cases and variants of COVID that will define recovery. And until July, we can expect COVID to continue with mass and social distancing, but with loosening restrictions by state as vaccines are rolled out. So we're expecting that by July, we'll reach that 70% herd immunity if 
the new strains do not present enough problems to mess with that timeline. So that's kind of where we are right now. I hope that's clear. So the best thing we can do right now for the next 14 weeks is to treat it like the beginning in March and be very vigilant. Even those people who are getting vaccinated to continue masks and social distancing. The time frame to the end of COVID uh, is sometime between July and December. Even if the new strains prove to be a problem, hopefully there'll be boosters available and we'll still be able to get to where we need to be before the end of 2021. It's likely that schools will resume again in August. I work for Cal State Fullerton. We are planning a resumption of classes in the fall, in August. Um, you know, we're also looking to see if anything's going to change that, but that seems to be the going feeling in terms of what's going to happen with classes. And if classes resume in August, most likely restaurants will reopen. Um, if 70 percent have had the vaccine by then, things should return pretty much back to at least the new normal of uh, a post-COVID world. Travel will also resume this summer with many wealthier Americans planning trips after they receive their second dose. I know I have friends who are telling me they're already getting their second dose and planning trips to Hawaii as we speak. So I know there are a lot of people that put off vacations and things that are retired. And once they get their two doses, they're, they're ready to travel again. So a lot of things are gonna resume quicker than July in terms of um, some travel. But um, um, you can kind of look at July as a time frame of when things may, may return. Uh, worst case scenario, the variants are less resistant. There'll be more boosters um, delaying things maybe until January for a full recovery. Uh, corporate advisors are suggesting that the respond phase is now ending and the recover phase has begun. The recover phase, meaning that um, we're going to work to recover from the damage done, and this will take for most of next year. They're looking at an 18-month time frame that started in January to do a recovery period. And this comes out of Deloitte and several other business um, enterprises that are looking ahead at how business is dealing with the recovery. So they're, they're saying that there's three phases to this. The respond phase is ending, the recover phase has started, will go for 18 months. And at that point, we'll go into the third phase, which they're calling Thrive, because they're business people. <laughs> and Thrive would be that 18 month phase after the recovery uh, in two years, when we can really um, kind of capitalize on that you know, people wanting to be back to normal and traveling again and eating out again and really kind of uh, bring business back very quickly and work that what they were hoping would be that V-shaped recovery out. Um, we have to deal with large government bailouts and debt from all of this, foreclosures, high unemployment, global recession and more. So as much as business would like to focus on getting back to business starting in August, um, we still have a recovery to deal with. We have all kinds of problems that have been put off. Uh, most importantly, unemployment and foreclosures. And those are going to lead to booms in things like homeless population, um, uh, all kinds of, of social sector issues that we as the social sector have to deal with. Social media inf uh, misinformation 
continues to be a huge problem destabilizing recovery, and that's going to continue. Uh, there's conspiracy theories around every corner. And we're uh, now looking to define the new normal through our recovery. So we must think about how our clients, stakeholders, and funders perceive our recovery because that's going to be a big part of how and when and if we can recover as organizations. Business groups warn to set reasonable expectations and be transparent, transparent and communicative with all of your stakeholders. And I think that's probably good advice for our sector as well. What we do as a community over the next 18 months will define the next three to five years. So with that, now I'm gonna turn things over to our panelists who are all experts in their area. Uh, for most of you probably know 1OC, they are the, the de facto trainer for Orange County in terms of our sector's training. And they do a lot of it and they do a lot of other things like marshalling resources for volunteers and boards. So I'm gonna turn it over now to Amanda who's going to talk about 1OC's planning for uh, support and recovery for the sector for 21-22. Take it away, Amanda. Thank you, Zoot. Thank you so much for having me and thank you all for joining us today. Happy to be here. Um, as Zoot shared, uh, 1OC has uh, a longtime role in the Orange County community in supporting our nonprofits and volunteers. Um, we were the volunteer center for about 50 years and then rebranded as 1OC. And that role really took um, a big, uh, a big, uh, term um, in the beginning of the pandemic. And that was really when we were tasked to be the emergency volunteer center um, and activate it. So we've had it kind of in a deactive status for about 10 years. And so in response to the pandemic, we were activated, worked in conjunction with the county and deployed thousands of volunteers to support relief and re um, recovery efforts in the midst of the, um, the pandemic last year. So thousands of volunteers supported um, dozens and dozens of nonprofits on a variety of projects. And so this year, um, when we started with everything um, kind of in this uh, recovery phase, as you mentioned, we um, were actually tasked with recruiting volunteers to help distribute the vaccines at uh, the pod sites. And so it, within the span of two weeks, we recruited about 6,000 volunteers to assist with that portion of recovery. Um, and that is still currently going on. As everyone knows, there's new sites. Um, and you can go on our website to learn more information about that. But in terms of our nonprofit sector, you know, a lot of what we saw was really everybody switching into that survival mode and doing everything that we possibly could to be able to support nonprofits through that time. And so that was creating things like our nonprofit resources page, um, a variety of different support networks, many of which are still in existence today. Our CEO forum has 130 people and part of it. And so we definitely see those things um, in terms of resources and support continuing. We launched a series of free webinars. We had about 30 last year, and we definitely continue to see that coming throughout uh, 2021 and 2022. And something that we're seeing in terms of the um, needs of nonprofits, it's kind of in two key areas, I would say. Um, 
The first is really on infrastructure support. And so one of the things that I think will really be helpful for organizations as they're planning into 21 and 22 is kind of looking at their resources from an infrastructure perspective. And so we have our AmeriCorps volunteer program. We have back office services like nonprofit accounting. We have recruitment services. And so all of these are things that we're seeing kind of an uptick in, in terms of nonprofits adopting some of these services or demonstrating some of these needs because everybody's kind of going, okay, we had to really rethink the way that we were delivering our programs and services services, the way that we were operating in the last year, and really needing to assess and address um, kind of where we were at and where we want to go. And so now that the dust has settled a little bit, and we've been in this for a while, we know we're going to continue to be in this a while. And even as things return to normal, you know, there's going to be a hybrid of everything. So what does that look like in terms of, do we have an office? Like, do we have people that are doing certain things? Do we have volunteers do certain things? Um, and how are we, it, how are we setting ourselves up as an organization to be successful. And so that's kind of the one side of things. The other side of things I would say is really on the strategy side. And so we're seeing organizations start to plan for uh, kind of the year ahead and the next couple of years. And something we implemented ourselves at 1OC was a bridge strategy. So instead of doing like a three to five year plan, because everything's so uncertain, it's really looking at um, the next 12 to 18 months. And Zoot, I know you did kind of the lemonade planning thing. It's very similar to that. Um, and really helping organizations start to think that way. And one of the biggest things that we've also seen during this time is an uptick in requests for support for boards of directors. Um, organizations are really realizing that they're needing to rely heavily on their volunteer leaders and for those people to support um, the mission of their organization, not just now, but kind of in the long term and be able to think ahead. And so we get calls almost every week um, requiring you know, services or support or just questions regarding how do I build out my board? How do I engage in board development services? How do I increase the diversity of my board? You know, that's another piece that Victoria mentioned earlier, the diversity, equity, inclusion, making sure that that's a huge part of the, the future in the nonprofit sector. And so those are just some of the things that we're seeing now and definitely some of the things that I think we're gonna continue to see throughout 2021 and into 2022. Amanda, do you, uh, do you see, uh, I think all of us are dealing with this idea of when things go you go back to where we can once again communicate. Many people have now become commissioned, con conditioned to never shake hands again, <laughs> to never really want to be in person again. We've all kind, kind of gotten used to not commuting, not getting in our cars. And my question for you is, does 1OC expect that it's going to continue a lot of its training on online through Zoom? And how much do you see the, the Zoom attitude continue after we can go back to in-person meetings? Yeah, definitely. So one of the things we did do in the last year was pivot all of our training courses to be online. So whether they were self-paced online courses or Zoom courses, as Zoot mentioned, and for the foreseeable future through July, that is how we have our courses planned. We do have our training room, which as of right now is open for our um, youth and drug alcohol deterrence program. We have a court referral program. Maybe you know that about 1OC, maybe you don't, but um, we have a capacity of 10 people in that room at a given time. And so looking into the 
future, we're starting to think about, is there the opportunity to create hybrid models where there can be some folks in the classroom, there can be some folks virtually, and we're all still sharing the same experience because there may be that fear or, you know, just in terms of the time that we're all saving and not commuting from place to place where people are going to want to stay kind of in that virtual capacity. And so those are things that we're definitely starting to explore. Um, I think if you would have asked that question, you know, in the last six months, maybe six months ago, it would have been like, oh, I don't even know if that's a possibility. I think people are either going to just want to do one or the other. And so I think now it's, you know, creating environments where that can happen um, and people can have access to that. So that's really something that we're starting to look into. Yeah, it's funny. I, I belong to a Rotary Club where a lot of people are older than me. And I teach classes where people are much younger uh, at the college level. And I've done um, surveys with both groups and almost identically 40 some percent want to meet in person all the time and 40 some percent want to stay on zoom all the time and it seems to be that that's kind of the new normals like half the people are dying to get back and half the people are kind of enjoying the non-commuting <laughs> role so i see that happening and maybe that's happening in your organizations as well next up i'm going to call on victoria Victoria really is one person that that has her ear to the to the to the ground all the time. She's got a Facebook group. She does a podcast as I do. Um, she she has right when COVID started, really kind of picking up a lot of um, a, a lot of interest in her Facebook group, where people could kind of uh, you know cry on each other's shoulders about what's going on and figure things out together. So and then she's involved with the Anaheim Hive, as well as her job at Sam Welly. So you've really kind of been in the trenches with a lot of people, Victoria, and I wondered what your thoughts are about um, the next phase of recovery from COVID, what you're seeing. Sure. Yeah. I need to, um, you know, talk about that. Um, so yes, in terms of the Facebook group, just wanted to, to add or mention that it's actually been officially handed over to the OCNPN um, uh, chapter uh, in the spirit of succession and making sure that nothing goes away. I wanted to make sure that it kept its livelihood and its um, uh, its vigor. And so I thought this was a, a great chapter to pass it on to. So we have a resource committee that actually oversees that Facebook group. Um, and I think in the beginning, it was really, uh, so I'll be honest, it was selfishly I created it because I'm such a connector and I'm someone that just likes to see people and be around people and network. And my work at the Hive, that's what I got to do. Um, I uh, operate a shared space um, in partnership with Anaheim Community Foundation. And um, my day was just going in and getting my coffee and walking around and saying good morning and, and working with nonprofits. And when COVID hit, I wasn't going to be able to do that. So, uh, so that's kind of where that stemmed from. And I found out that a lot of people were yearning that a lot of people were um, wanting to uh, keep that connection, but also learn about resources. So what I love about the group is that the goal is to be for it to be really for all of you on this call to go in and ask questions, get advice. And there were questions about we're transitioning our fundraiser, you know, in person to uh, virtual, what are the tools people are using? Um, I, we need to move our program, um, you know, virtually, what are the platforms that people are using right now? Or just things like that, that I think we were all just yearning to, um, uh, to catch up on, right? In the nonprofit world, we're 
already kind of behind when it comes to certain things, especially technology. And then we had to ramp it up really quickly. So I think, um, I think the post COVID world, I don't think that's going away from what I'm learning with, uh, from nonprofits is, uh, similar to what Amanda was saying that 1OC is doing, what is the virtue, what is the hybrid model look like? And I think, uh, nonprofits are going that route as well. I think what I'm, what I was excited to hear in talking to nonprofits, um, cause I also do cohorts, uh, with our grantees is that they actually started to realize, you know what, this works better virtually. Um, so let's stay here virtual for certain programming. And then let's, and then let's be more intentional and purposeful for the in-person because things have to be smaller. Um, even as we open up for venues, you know, I've had some nonprofits um, uh, share that there's gonna be a virtual element, but for those who can come in person, how, how can we be selective to those in-person people that are coming? So it's really, um, it's, it's really inspiring to see the sector grow in this way and kind of, um, kind of pause and reflect and also, and almost kind of come up to par with where corporate world is and where some other sectors are. It's almost like putting us at a new even playing field, which I, I like, and it's exciting to see in here. And, um, and then I've noticed a lot of uptick in social media and um, utilizing that. I wish there was more, I'm not gonna lie. I wish there was more um, use of social media and marketing. I think we've had to get our story out more. Some have done really, really well with it. They've harnessed that and got on YouTube or boosted up their Instagram or um, uh, just any social media channel but I think there's still a lot more that needs to be done in that area. I, th I think we're still lacking, unfortunately. Could you so give an example of someone who's done really well in their social media through COVID? Um, sure, so uh, one of our grantees in Anaheim, uh, Pure Game, they've done an exceptional job of um, utilizing YouTube and sharing stories, uh, doing podcasting and connecting. That uh, board, so I was just adding on to what Amanda was saying about the board's um, lack of engagement over COVID. I think uh, that social media is one area that the board can step up and get involved in, you know, participating in sharing stories, participating in, in the storytelling. Uh, and I know um, Pure Game was doing a lot of work in um, getting their staff involved and their board involved. Because that's really all they could do. Because another thing that I think other uh, nonprofits realize is their audience was changing. So um, I worked with one cohort specifically that were in the schools. And before, you know, their audience was or their client was the school, the teachers, the principals, the staff. And overnight, the audience shifted to the parent. Like now, how do we get to the parent? Um, because the schools are too busy figuring out and adjusting their model. And now the parent needed stuff, right? The parent needs um, ways to keep their kid busy. So some nonprofits, um, I think that's not gonna change. I think uh, there's a lot of nonprofits out there that are opening themselves up to a new audience and trying to figure out ways to market to them and um, keep get them involved. And then that in turn, I think added to uh, 
doors for fundraising. You know, giving days were huge last year, uh, monumental. Um, and that's another audience to tap into uh, as you as you look at um, you know the, the different angles of how this works. So a lot happened, and 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 there are nonprofits that really, really, really harnessed it. I just wanted to piggyback off of what Victoria said. I um, helped to run a, a group called Youth Serving Organizations Convening with uh, James Littlejohn and Lucy Santana. And um, that's exactly some of the things that we've had conversations about with the organizations that are part of that is how do we balance meeting the needs of families um, when we may have previously just served students um, or individuals or schools and is that something that we want to continue to do or, it, or when does that become mission creep? And that's a big question that I think a lot of nonprofits have had to deal with during the pandemic and will continue to have to look at in 21 and 22, um, I think as they're you know, refining strategies and things like that. So just wanted to, to make that point. It's a good point. I actually wanted to add, because I didn't really talk about the hive a lot, but um, even in terms of space, you know, what I'm finding with the space that we have is uh, I noticed through the Facebook group, a lot of, uh, not a lot, but several nonprofits um, uh, not, not um, opting into new lease agreements and giving away furniture and realizing we can do this <laughs> without a big old office. So I think the need actually for spaces like the Hive is going to increase for just, you know, one day board events or team meetings or, uh, you know, touch bases for those small, you know, nonprofits that just, you know, we, we can manage what we can manage virtually, but every now and then let's come together and do what we need. So we're, we're preparing for that, for maybe an uptick in those, those needs. And what does that look like? How does scheduling, you know, um, figure that, that out? And then also how can we repurpose some of the space and those rooms to be more intentional for, uh, for things that nonprofits need like a media lab, you know, a place for people to come in and record their videos or, or record their podcast or record whatever it is that they need. So we are also assessing like the best use of the hive. You know, that, that reminds me, you know, 1OC and Charitable Ventures are the two groups that do um, fiscal sponsorships, fiscal uh, receivership, fiscal sponsorship in our area. Amanda, have you noticed an uptick in people wanting fiscal sponsorship? Yeah, definitely. So in terms of our fiscal sponsorship program, um, we have 49 current uh, fiscal projects and it was definitely a challenging time this last year for our fiscal projects um, to really assess kind of where they were at in terms of a lot, you know, a lot of the concerns that we've already talked about on this, um, this call and deciding kind of what um, needs they're going to be able to meet in the future. Cause again, a lot of them are working in schools or they're serving, you know, very specific niche populations. And so um, with the fiscal sponsorship program, something that we're really trying to start broaching the conversation with nonprofits is um, it's not just for incubating a new idea. It's an opportunity, you know, if something isn't going right in your organization or you want to kind of reassess 
whether you want to operate as your own 501c3, you can really become a fis uh, fiscal sponsor for a short period or a fiscal project for a short period of time and then get back your 501c3 um, when you're kind of back up on your feet and you have that capacity. And so, as you know, a lot of nonprofits, we had to furlough people, we had to, um, you know, downsize, we had to get rid of our leases, as Victoria was saying. And so that's just an option that's there. Um, and I know it's hard because it's hard to kind of broach that subject. It's, it's tough, I think. Um, for people to start thinking about those things. But just want to know that it's it's not a bad thing. It's definitely, we're here to support you, right? So at, in our fiscal sponsorship program, you not only have access to a client services manager who's with you every step of the way, you get all of 10C's back office to be able to support um, pretty much all of the needs that you can think of, you know, your payroll, your accounting, all these things. And it really allows you to focus on your mission of your organization. Um, so that's something that, you know, we're definitely encouraging folks if that's, you know, something that may make sense for them um, this year or next year is considering, you know, that that option as an alternative to the 501c3. And I'll just mention again, for those of you who are considering, you do have two, two options of fiscal receivers, fiscal sponsors here, 1OC and Charitable Ventures, but any organization can be a fiscal sponsor to somebody who wants to be an organization, but you know it's nice to have people who are experts at doing that, shepherding you along the way. And that's what they do at those two organizations I mentioned, 1OC and Charitable Ventures. Okay, then let's turn over to Rick now, because one of the biggest sectors hit have been live venues and the arts. And so Rick Stein's gonna give us kind of a, a where we are and where we're going in terms of getting the arts back on track. And you do a lion's share of the work there, Rick. I appreciate what you do. Uh, thank you so much, Zoot. And uh, uh, you've been a role model for me as well. So, oh, please. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I just have to say, uh, so, uh, I'm Rick Stein and I'm the president and CEO of Arts Orange County and we are the countywide nonprofit Arts Council. Uh, it's our 25th year and um, we are designated by the County Board of Supervisors as their officially designated local arts agency, but we are not part of the government. We do not receive funding from them. Uh, all that does is really entitle us to uh, have that uh, role vis-a-vis uh, -vis the California Arts Council, which is the state arts agency. Um, and I'm going to start by saying my pronouns are he, him, and his, and that I am coming to you today on the ancestral lands of the Ahashiman Nation of the Juanino Band of Mission Indians. And um, I'm sure it's not the first time you've heard those things stated in a meeting. And I think it's one of those things that uh, during the pandemic that many of us have been, have grown in our awareness regarding uh, the issues of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And some of us like Arts Orange County and other organizations have uh, developed racial um, equity statements and policies and uh, presented programs with speakers about it. We did, we had uh, 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 Doug Haynes, the vice chancellor from UCI for diversity, speak to a large group of arts leaders about it. So, um, during the pandemic, when, when arts organizations and venues were the very first to close, because we are all about social gathering and realize that we may be the very last to reopen because of that same reason, <clears throat> that um, 
you know, of course, it was sort of like the uh, five stages of grief uh, for many, uh, but um, going through those phases included certainly the realization that we could still be doing things. We could still be providing services. Some organizations were better prepared in terms of their technology and uh, experience doing that. Others were learning it for the first time. Same with the racial, uh, racial equity. Uh, it was brand new uh, to many people to embark on this. Others were well along in the process. We feel that uh, this has been an opportunity not only in the area of developing new delivery mechanisms for the content that we all produce and present, uh, but it has also, uh, as others have stated, enabled us, uh, and particularly Arts Orange County, uh, as a service organization to the field, <clears throat> to really bring our arts leaders together on a more frequent basis. So we have had approximately 60 uh, Zoom roundtables uh, with 12 different cohorts of arts leaders uh, going on since the pandemic began. And it's been great in terms of people meeting colleagues who they had never met before. So the networking, uh, of course, we discovered that many more of our arts leaders now have beards um, and long hair. Uh, but, uh, and I'm also delighted to call out, I know we have five of our arts leaders on the call today. Uh, Nancy, Tammy, Anthony, Erica, and Allison, I saw on the list. So they have attended these and participated. And <clears throat> there was, a, a, you know, that terrible pessimism about uh, will these organizations be able to survive this? And we indeed did lose two organizations um, who closed their doors as theaters, and that's Stages Theater in Fullerton and um, the Attic Theater in Santa Ana. Uh, both of them, though, have uh, vowed that they will return. What they had to do was close their doors because they couldn't pay the rent anymore. And as the pandemic lingered, they just knew that they, they couldn't afford to dip into their reserves anymore and pay the rent. So we're definitely hopeful they'll return. And there's a wonderful group of theaters called the OC Theater Guild, uh, which was a gleam in the eye of many arts leaders about 20 years ago, but finally came into existence and fruition just in the past couple of years and is actively bringing those theater leaders together of all sizes. But from my own perspective, and this is something I've been saying almost from the very beginning, because I, my observations about uh, the public uh, have been that uh, there's a tremendous desire to get back to normal. Of course, we hear that in other areas, but uh, in the arts as well. And I'm predicting that there will actually be a renaissance of the arts when this is all over. I mean, after the Black Death and, uh, uh, you know, in the Middle Ages, there was a great renaissance of ideas and the arts in Europe. So uh, uh, why not here? Why not now? I would say that uh, there, there have been discoveries with the tech, new technology, the ability to reach many more people, different people, people around the country, around the globe as audiences for local theaters that would never have attracted the attention of those theater goers and other theater artists, of course, the opportunity to see the work of theater artists around the world for our own uh, theater community. 
Um, the role that we have played has often been as an advocate. Yes, we do some uh, limited programming, but we are primarily a service organization and advocacy is the most important service that we perform. Uh, if you want to go to our website at artsoc.org, you can see the COVID response report we prepared in December because um, we conducted a survey soon after the pandemic began uh, and we calculated what the financial losses were and the prognosis by arts leaders. We presented it to the Orange County Board of Supervisors and uh, we just battered away at them with our advocacy um, and uh, uh, the needs, you know, informing them and educating them about the needs of the arts community. And we're able to generate about $2.8 million in CARES Act funding that became open to the arts community, uh, 1.2 million of which uh, we actually were involved in uh, regranting in partnership with Charitable Ventures in the OC Arts and Culture Resilience Fund. Some of that was privately raised, but $1 million came from the county and from the city of Santa Ana. And we were able to fund uh, individual artists, arts businesses, and nonprofit arts organizations through those funds. And, you know, of course, it's never enough, but when, when the situation was so desperate, any funding uh, was, was uh, welcome. Uh, but our advocacy continued and just a few minutes ago, I got an email from the head of our state arts advocacy organization on whose board I serve and I was president of the board for three years. Uh, the governor announced today $50 million in uh, relief grants for cultural institutions statewide. Um, and we're very, very excited about that because he had indicated a desire to provide relief to the uh, culture, cultural institutions about a month ago, um, but we were urging him to do more than he initially had proposed. We're also very lucky that um, Assemblywoman Sharon Quirk Silva in Fullerton now chairs the Arts Committee of the Assembly. It's, it's arts, entertainment, internet, sports, and tourism, um, but she has looked at the plight of arts organizations and theme parks. Remember, theme parks are closed as well um, and are obviously big in our local economy and, and big employers of individual artists. So um, she's been a great advocate to try to have safe reopening protocols uh, approved. Um, so I think we're gonna see uh, a, a renaissance. Um, there is pent up demand there and um, Yet those who, you know, uh, Azut's uh, successor at the Muckenthaler Center uh, has done some outdoor programming on the grounds of the Muckenthaler. Some other arts, arts organizations have been innovative in doing similar kinds of activities. The Argeros Plaza at Segerstrom Center for the Arts has done the same. But when you take a look at it, and I'm not discouraging anyone from going, um, you can see a picture on their Facebook page of the Ardros Plaza because they're promoting their movie nights, but the limited uh, number of people who can attend, and you see all the lines on the ground that they've marked out as to how far away from each other, each pod of attendees has to be seated in the walkways. It's kind of demoralizing to see that in my opinion. You know, I really can't wait until we get back to being able to be in the concert halls and the theaters again, and the museums. And I know that uh, we have had 
some great generosity by funders, which was already mentioned. And some funders have really stepped up to the plate. And, and I know Todd will be talking about this as well. Uh, but uh, that's pretty much uh, my spiel. I'm happy to answer any questions. Great, thank you. We, we've been, yes. I've been putting some things you've been mentioning in the chat so people can follow up on them. For example, Farrell Hirsch is the director of the MUC and they're at the muck.org and they did do a lot of pivoting. I hate to use that word because it's so overused now, but- Oh, I know. Uh, uh, in, in, within COVID. And um, uh, Tammy made the comment, we will be live streaming concerts from the Muckenthaler and the Barclay Theater very soon. Sponsored by the Music Performance Trust Fund, American Federation of Mu uh, Musicians, Local 7 at uh, and the wonderful venue. So that's great news. That's great news. Things, things are changing. I think we've adapted. We're continuing to adapt. And I love your prophecy that a renaissance is coming. That's great, Rick. All right. So uh, probably the hardest hit area for COVID with the longest time frame is going to be social services. So social services is going to be pulling out of this a lot longer than the rest of the economy because they're going to be the ones picking up after all of the bankruptcies when they finally all come down to the pike and all of the um, shortages and all of the unemployment that's coming. So that's all been deferred because of government programs, but it can't be deferred forever. So with us is Claudia and Claudia is with, um, is with, you know, the people who are on the front lines of that, which is Second Harvest, dealing with the food insecurities that we have. So, Claudia, tell us a little bit about what you expect um, kind of come, moving forward uh, for the social services industry uh, with you at the forefront there at Second Harvest. Thank you, Zit, and it's great to be with all of you. And, and thank you for uh, realizing that we're kind of the back of the parade um, and depending on who you're listening to, what economic forecast you're, you're listening to or what newscast, the state of the economy, you know, people have different predictions. Oh, it's a K-shaped curve, a W-shaped curve, a Nike swoosh curve. So I don't know that any of us know when we will fully recover from this. Those of us in the social sector have the sinking feeling that it is going to take a while, depending on where you sit. Oddly, uh, we were, I don't wanna say that the social sectors were the first hit, but if you, if you think back to March and you think of uh, restaurant closures, as Rick mentions, arts closures, entertainment, sports, theme parks, hotels, tourism, all of those workers were the first ones to be let go. And we felt it literally in the opening days of lockdown and COVID. Um, I will share with you a personal anecdote. I had been with the food bank about six weeks. And right around that time in late January, early February, I was, uh, I say I was in startup mode as a new employee on a new, on a new part of my career. Um, and that startup mode uh, really is something that I came to view how the food bank, and I imagine other social sector organizations may have felt because it was if it was as if the bottom had been pulled out. Um, I will say, and I will give credit many times over to our pantry and partner network, uh, food banks like Second Harvest and our sister pantry across the, across the county, the Orange County Food Bank, we operate through a series of pantry network, of, of pantries that were equally as hard hit with literally a tsunami of demand. 
Um, we were distributing about two and a half million pounds of food in February. By late May, we were distributing about six million pounds of food. So the demand almost tripled overnight and we didn't have volunteers uh, for obvious reasons of social distancing and the many hurdles that we as a provider of food uh, were experiencing uh, a disrupted uh, food chain, um, uh, disruptions, lack of volunteers, social distancing, you name it, we were hit with it. But in that startup mentale of we've got to do whatever it takes, um, you may have seen us at the Honda Center handing out food to 6,000 cars that lined up on, on a typical weekend to get food. That was all done literally um, in a matter of days, calling in favors. Uh, you know, I personally placed a call to the Anaheim Ducks saying, can we use your parking lot? So we became very scrappy. We became very um, flexible, very nimble throughout the pandemic. Another example I'll give you is that we were not able to rely on donations of food anymore um, because we didn't have the volunteers to process those donations of food and we had to turn to, to purchasing food. Uh, luckily, um, we were um, the beneficiaries of the generosity of this county. Uh, everybody stepped up, donors, foundations, corporations, churches, you name it, they stepped up to provide the funding that we needed to keep going. And all that money today continues to buy food. But our operation is very different. And I imagine that other social uh, sector organizations, whether it's you know, housing, mental health, are also facing the reality of a huge need, um, in many cases, an increase in revenue, but challenges that we as a sector have not had to deal with before. So if you're in that startup mentality, because I think many of us thought this was, I don't know about you guys, but in February, I thought oh, by summer, this will be over. I never imagined that we would be in this for a year. And if you listen to the news today, we may still be here by the end of this summer into fall. So it's not a, it's not a blizzard, it's, a, it's an ice age. And we're emerging as different organizations because of what we've been provided in terms of revenue, many of us in the social, uh, in the social sector, but also the challenges that we've had to face. Um, so we are more nimble, we are more efficient, and we are looking at our mission in a new way. Um, hunger was there before. Hunger was elevated through this crisis. Everybody knows someone that lost their job. A lot of people know people that have gone to food banks and pantries for the very, very first time. So hunger um, and other social needs will remain elevated in the public sector, uh, in the public view. What that does is that reminds everybody of the value that organizations like Second Harvest and food pantries provide to the county. Um, and that has made us look at ourselves very differently. We look at ourselves now, not necessarily as a nonprofit, although we are, <laughs> but we see ourselves as a for purpose. We see ourselves before the pandemic, we would do what we were doing what we could with what we had. Today, we have to find a way to do what it takes to feed people and ultimately to shorten the lines at our pantries, to address hunger at its core and to, to really start to address hunger as a symptom of poverty. 
And we look at ourselves not necessarily anymore as a charity, but really we're looking for people to invest in their community because through this crisis, our value has become evident to people. And we see ourselves as continuing that way through the duration of the crisis and, and, and into, into post-COVID mode. So we've learned a lot through this. And as I imagine other, other of our sister organizations in this sector have also um, found themselves challenged and had, having to pivot, it, pivot operational models, but also emerging resilient in that we're still standing um, we're too essential to fail. Um, and we will come out of this. Um, I like to, I don't use the word new normal. I like to use new better. Because I think if in the social sector, we have to be better. If we're going to end hunger, if we're going to uh, end homelessness, if we're going to finally give mental health uh, the, the, um, uh, the stage that it needs to be addressed, we have to be better than we were before. Um, I know in many cases, the resources are there. So we need to take advantage of this moment to telegraph to the world, look what we were able to do in crisis. Imagine what we can do when this crisis is over in bettering humanity um, and the many core causes that we, um, that we address in our missions. Um, so we, I hope that's a hopeful message because there is, you know, sometimes not a lot of hope in the world. Um, as someone that came into the social service sector with about six weeks before the pandemic, people often ask me, oh, wow, you know, how, how did that work out for you? I am blessed to be where I am um, because never have I had more clear purpose in my career or in my personal life. So I'm glad to be back in Orange County, which is my home. I was in LA for 15 years. But I so applaud the many professionals, many of you on this call, and again, our pantry network for really, really standing up to literally feed OC uh, through this uh, incredibly tragic uh, pandemic that we've all been through. That was quite inspirational. Thank you, Claudia. I appreciate that. You know, this summer I did a research project on people who survived the last recession and what they had in common, people who thrived in it. And it was not looking for funding, but looking inside their community for partnership, looking for leadership, looking for um, purpose, like you say, being uh, social impact agents rather than nonprofits. And I think when you have that mindset, it's definitely a, a helpful thing. So thanks for reminding us of that. That was very inspirational. Okay, and, and I see from the chat, everyone feels the same way. <laughs> and that's a hard act for Todd to follow, but uh, <laughs> but Todd, you are a representative of the philanthropic community and for good reason, because Orange County Community Foundation is the hub of that wheel that really leads that community within Orange County and does it, I must say, very effectively. So. I'm going to turn things over to you and tell us how funders are dealing with the crisis, because I think we as organizations see it from our side, but being where I am, I kind of see it from both sides. And I see how difficult this has been for funders because you want to reach out to all the new needs that are happening without letting go of the needs you've already been addressing. 
And, you know, how do you do more with the same amount? And it's very difficult. So maybe you can speak to a little bit about what funders are going through. Sure. Well, yeah, it is tough to follow Claudio's positive message, but I got some good news to start with here. So, you know, I think you already heard that our giving shot way up from 70 million the year before to over 100 million this last fiscal year. And during this year, we're already on pace to, to beat that again. So um, what we're seeing is um, private foundations and all of our donors giving more than they ever gave before. So I've had so many conversations with donors who um, decided to accelerate their giving, give more. And obviously the stock market has done well. So there's more wealth among the wealthy <laughs> to distribute. And what I've seen in conversations with so many of our donors is this has really shook everyone, no matter where you're at in many different ways. And it's helped them better understand just how vulnerable we all are and how we all have to work together. So I'm seeing donors that are doing more, just more than writing checks. You know, they want to come up with new ideas. One of our donors worked with me. We started a new nonprofit to do events for nonprofits because we were doing online events and they were very expensive. <laughs> and we thought, there has to be a better way. We, we had to employ people that need work and we've got to bring down the price of online events. And so this was created this last year by one of our donors, Bob Ostrimoth. And a bit other, like another donor reached out who gave a lot to the resilience fund, um, but he just put another $50,000 and he asked us to reach out to our other donors to match it for food, because we still know food is still a big need. So this is something he would have never done before, but continuing you know, that kind of you know, compassion to help others. And I still have conversations every day with donors wanting to know like how they can help. So I get more of those calls than I ever got before. And this is really my message to all of you out there of what you can do is um, you can continue to really communicate exactly where you're at, what you need. And so like I, I go to a lot of your websites and for some, I see nothing about what's going on. You've done no updates to it. I don't know where the, what the state is <laughs> and I'm not criticizing because when you have time to do that, <laughs> but um, if you're not, not to go on your website, you get it somehow to keep that communication flowing because that's what every donor is asking me is how can I make a difference? And it's, it's not an easy decision. It's more than writing a check. And um, anyway, so that's, that's where we're at. One of your questions too is like how, how their priorities have shifted. So um, for the most part, they did go away from the arts a little bit. They went away from things that weren't, you know, food and shelter that has picked up and we're continuing to see that. The other shift that we're seeing both um, with, you know, our funding, our donors funding and the foundations is they're moving away from program grants to just um, operating support grants. And so like, if you got a grant from the community foundation, you know, you heard from us and said, hey, uh, no report due <laughs> uh, and no, uh, you know, it just allocated um, to you know, keep the doors open. And then, so moving forward, we're having meetings here internally about how we look at our grant programs in the future and, and how we move more towards just operating support and less towards program support. So the advantage of that is, you know, that's, you know really gives you more flexibility as an organization to allocate the funds where you need it most. Uh, the challenge for a foundation to go in that direction is, well, how do you pick one project over another if you don't know what it's going towards. So we're going to find a healthy balance there in how we restructure kind of competitive grant programs. I think, um, you know, a, a big uh, debt of gratitude to Orange County Community Foundation 
for really, you know, taking the leadership on this. And it was very early in the pandemic that uh, they uh, established the Orange County Resilience Fund. And uh, that got money out there immediately to all the um, immediate needs, the food and shelter, you know, safety net organizations. And it was after they had concluded that, that uh, I approached uh, Shelley Haas and Todd and said, uh, you know, could we do something similar for the arts? And to their credit, um, they partnered with us and with Charitable Ventures to set up the Arts Resilience Fund. Um, but that, but I give them a lot of credit too to look at this um, model that so much of the nonprofit sector has really been clamoring for for a long time, and that's um, general operating support and the fact that. Um, you know, so much very specific project and program support, you know, and changing trends in those, uh, uh, you know, favorite programs, the, the flavor of the day in a way with many foundations was something that was very frustrating to the field. And I think with this pandemic, it uh, has, you know, opened the eyes of a lot of donors that, you know, uh, if we don't have these organizations survive and in good health, they're not going to have projects and programs that we want to fund anyway. So it's really, uh, we need to make sure that they have the wherewithal and the capacity to do what they do best. And, and that uh, uh, has been impacted on the federal and state level as well in the arts arena, at least, because the NEA um, lifted some of its restrictions uh, during the pandemic on its funding and the California Arts Council actually has, a, they opened up, a, today was the deadline to apply for general operating support. The first time they've had that in probably 20 years. Yes, yeah, I, you know, we owe, we owe Orange County Community Foundation a big debt of gratitude for their leadership because, um, you know, through them and through uh, vehicles like, um, uh, charitable ventures and uh, OC grant makers, they were able to really quickly roll out some really important relief for the sector. So yes, definitely. I'm with you, Todd. So um, in the spirit of all that is good coming and looking at this silver linings, I see so many things that uh, I've been hearing too, you know, like, uh, uh, people didn't want to do operating support. Now people are doing operating support grants. People didn't want to allow people their their staff to work from home. Now everyone's okay with people working from home. People didn't want older people didn't want to do any kind of online meetings. Now they're all okay with online meetings. So there's a lot of silver linings that have come out. So to Amanda's point, we we have hybrid program opportunities to look forward to. We have lemonade planning to kind of plan an 18 month period of recovery in front of us. And um, 1OC and the Gianneschi Center and others can help you with that if you need help with that. Victoria um, made the point about board engagement on social media, which I think was a very important point that we all need to get our boards engaged on social media. It's the one thing that our boards can do for us during COVID um, is be our, our ambassadors in the community through their social media streams. And that was a great point, Victoria. 
Um, the social enterprise mindset that Victoria mentioned about watching out for mission creep as we redefine ourselves, that was something Amanda also mentioned, and um, fiscal sponsorship up uptick using places like the Hive and shared office space, places like uh, 1OC and charitable ventures that do back office work to help people um, kind of get back up and also maybe even an opportunity for smaller organizations just to get up, you know, that never, never um, were, were all, all the way there to begin with. And then COVID happened and this gives them an opportunity to kind of to get up in the first place. So all of those are, are real positives. Rick mentioned um, diversity, equity and inclusion issues that have come to the forefront are going to continue. I think that's a great thing for all of us to keep in mind. Um, uh, experimentation opportunities to develop online content as they're doing in the arts. And I think all of us should be developing more online content. I know I have um, more communication online opportunities uh, for all of us to communicate online more now and using that. Two organizations were lost to COVID as theaters, but they have this resilient attitude that's pervading the arts sector that a res, uh, renaissance is coming. And I think that's true of the whole um, hospitality sector as well. You know, I think as soon as people can travel again, they're dying to travel and get out and do things. And there's no doubt that there's going to be a big renaissance after this is over. Um, and that advocacy, one thing that Rick is passionate about and is very good at is advocacy and advocacy is gonna be key. There's 53 million in new relief uh, grants for, for the arts, thanks because of people like Rick who are advocating and we all can do better. Um, Victoria mentioned that we have to be more like for-profit for sector in advocating for ourselves and doing things that show that we're important. And we are, as Claudia mentioned, bat and clean up here. And we have to show people who have the funding that we are important. So if you uh, would like to get involved in advocacy, there is a California Association of Nonprofits. There is Rick Stein for the Arts. There is you know, any number of organizations you can get involved with. There's museum organizations like California Museums. There's, you know, you name it, but Google it and find somebody who can help you with your advocacy. And um, I think that was a great point. So Claudia's points, the social sector is the first to get hit and the slowest to recover. And we need to keep that in mind. And I think the people with funding in the government need to keep that in mind also. And we need to be more nimble, efficient and entrepreneurial. You know, entrepreneur, entrepreneurship was not mentioned specifically, but it's come up over and over again with everyone's speaking. We need to think differently and use this as opportunities to do new things. And I think she said the best about that. It's not the new normal, but the new better. How can we do things better to survive and thrive? And, um, and we're, you know, I tell people this all the time. So I'm glad you said it, Claudia. We're not nonprofits, but we're for purpose organizations. And I, I like to think of us as social impact organizations. And our goal is social impact. It's not to not make a profit. <laughs> so let's work on that. And then Todd's points, 70 million over, uh, 70 million originally, now over 100 million in giving every year. Uh, is it every year or is that in total, Todd? Well, last year, we'll hope we'll do it again this year. Okay. 
Yeah. So, you know, they've really bumped up their giving and they were really on the forefront of doing that with, with funders around, uh, around the county. There's more wealth now because the wealthy are in a bull market. So they have more wealth to distribute. So that's a good thing for us as we're batting cleanup. Um, new entrepreneurship models among donors. So even though we're thinking about how we can be more entrepreneurial, even Todd's uh, investors are thinking about how they can be more entrepreneurial and help us. So that's, that's really cool. And for those of you who don't know, Todd runs a really great social entrepreneurship grant program, which um, I've been lucky enough to be part of. And that's really awesome. Um, so keep your, he made a great piece of advice to us. I hope you all heard it. He said, keep your websites, your social media, your communication up to date so that when funders look you up, they, they don't get something that's six months old. Um, they know what you're doing and what you're on the front line of. So that was a great piece of advice. Thank you, Todd. We need to shift away, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, originally when the pandemic started, they shifted away from arts and um, non-social services giving, but now they're coming back realizing that they have to, uh, to do more because those things are coming back online. And um, operating support is up, which is a great shift from program grants. That's a good thing for us to think about that we could apply for just operating support grants. And, um, and I think there's lots of interesting ways that uh, funders can come up with who should get those grants. So um, I'm sure they're working on that. And I, I would love to, to be in that room, boy. <laughs> that, that would be a fun room to be in to hear those conversations. Okay, so that's what I... I, I wanted to highlight from what I heard. Claudia said, I hope you all can thrive in chaos. <laughs> Do you want to say it out loud, Claudia? Go ahead, because it's a podcast. Yeah, that's my ultimate hope for all of you, that you can thrive in this chaos and we'll all get through this. Uh, the goal should be getting through it better than we, than we entered it. So that is my profound wish for every single nonprofit in this county. I think some really great things came out of this. And what I am feeling uplifted from this is this idea that, um, you know, we can do it, that yes, we can, you know, that whole mentality of, of uh, this is just an opportunity for us to think a little bit differently and do some new programs that are going to make us better, not normal. And I love that, Claudia. Thank you for that. Thank you to the Gene Eschy Center for Nonprofit Research, California State University Fullerton, and the College of Business and Economics for supporting our podcast. Our supporters include the Orange County Community Foundation, Southern California Gas Company, and you, our listeners. Thanks for the music provided to us by the California-based Brazilian Coro Ensemble, Grupo Falso Baiano. Have a great week, free from BS. Music